I'm Michael Corcoran, a partner at international law firm Hill Dickinson. This podcast is part of a series hosted by the Longevity Forum and released as part of Longevity Week, an annual conference in London which brings together thought leaders, policymakers, and investors interested in the field of longevity. Longevity is a shorthand description for an industry that populates a very wide range of sectors focused on extending, improving, and financing an increased human health span. What seemed like science fiction 20 years ago is happening now in labs and clinics around the world as new and improved drugs and therapies beat or delay many serious illnesses or conditions associated with aging, giving many the opportunity to live healthier for longer. The theme for Longevity Week is the age of resilience, focusing on the challenges presented by COVID-19 and discussing ideas on how we can prevent and combat future pandemics to ensure a healthier, longer lives can be achieved by all. Today's topic is the clean meat revolution, and I'm delighted to be joined by entrepreneur Jim Mellon and co-founder of the Good Foods Institute, Bruce Friedrich. We've done a, a poor job summarizing how vast a field longevity is and how wide-ranging the implications are for everybody. Perhaps we should start with Jim giving a bit of background as to when he became interested in the field of longevity and what he has learned in the last few years. Well, thanks, Michael. I've been involved in biotech for about the last 15 years with my partners and uh, we've created a number of companies in the biotech field. One has a drug for migraine, which is on the market in the US now and is doing pretty well. Uh, more relevantly, our latest company, Juvenescence, which started three years ago, has raised a reasonable amount of money and is preparing to go public in the next few months. And that focuses on the science of longevity, which as you said, or alluded to, is one where the um, scientists are catching up with the aspiration of almost everyone on the planet to live a healthier and longer life. And although we're in the dial-up phase of the internet in respect of longevity science, in other words, you know, it's still very primitive and no one really knows what's going to work. We do know that something is going to work. So we've assembled about 20 projects um, across 12 corporate silos, uh, some of which are advanced stages of um, development and some of which are um, you might call it a more moonshot approach uh, uh, side of things. But all of it is super exciting because we know since the unveiling of the human genome that uh, it is possible to interfere with, in a positive way, the pathways of aging, having identified what those pathways are. And already there are some therapies that we think will add healthy years of living and possibly extra years of living to the human being. So the bottom line is that um, I got interested in it. I wrote a book about it. I travel around the US, met the key opinion leaders in the same way as we've done with the agricultural field or the new agricultural field. And we've developed an ecosystem. And we believe very strongly that in the next 30 years, so in time for your children, Michael, and Laura's children, for that matter, we will have a life expectancy at birth of somewhere between 110 and 120, which will change everything on the planet. Now, very briefly, allied to that increase in longevity, uh, one of the key things will be the improvement in our food supply, uh, which is closely linked to the other great meta theme of the, on the planet at the moment, which is climate change, um, which is very adversely influenced by the current food supply. So it's a, you know, there are three meta themes all linking together and form the basis of great optimism for humanity and also great optimism for investors who are you know, savvy enough to invest in the sector. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Bruce, as, as co-founder of the Good Food Institute, could you give a 
short introduction to the Good Foods Institute and what is meant by the, the term clean meat. Absolutely. And thank you very much, Michael. Thank you, Jim, for uh, all of your work on juvenescence and longevity. And thanks for inviting me to be a part of this panel. Uh, the Good Food Institute, it's a, a, a nonprofit organization and NGO. We operate in the United States as well as in India, Israel, Brazil, uh, Asia Pacific, and in Europe. We have an office in Brussels and we have a small team also in London. And the focus of the Good Food Institute is to address the myriad harms that come from the current way that we create meat. So the way that we create meat right now has uh, vast external costs, adverse impacts uh, on the environment, on global health, on food security, um, and obviously also on animal welfare. So the basic focus of GFI, and we have policy experts and lobbyists and scientists and corporate engagement specialists, and all of it is focused on transforming the way that we make meat, giving consumers everything that they like about meat, uh, but doing it either biomimicking the meat experience with plants or cultivating meat directly from cells. Uh, and that segues into your second question, what is meant by the term clean meat? So clean meat is a, a play on clean energy. Clean energy is energy that is uh, less harmful to the environment. Uh, clean meat is real animal meat that is less harmful to the environment. So right now, the way that we make meat, we feed massive amounts of crops to animals and the animal's cells multiply and grow. That's what happens when a chicken comes out of the shell and becomes you know, a full-fledged chicken and so on. And that is how we get animal meat right now. With clean meat, instead of doing that, you feed the cells directly. So you cultivate the cells in a cultivator and you grow the exact same meat except that it's a heck of a lot cleaner, uh, which is to say it has a significantly less adverse impact on land use, on species loss, on climate change. Uh, so just like clean energy is energy that's better for the environment, clean meat is real animal meat that's better for the environment. Thank you. And on the basis our audience are not familiar with the science, um, what is the basic process for growing cell-based meat? And um, what has the industry learned in terms of quality and taste and texture and appearance as it's evolved? Sure. Well, the science is pretty basic. So just like you can cultivate... For you, maybe. For you, maybe. <laughs> it's, uh, for, for anybody, Michael, it's really not that hard to understand. I mean, you know, there, there's certainly a jump. If you're going you know, somebody who has a PhD in tissue engineering or meat science is going to give an answer that will be incomprehensible to me and probably most of the audience. But at its most basic level, just like you don't have to be a plant biologist or a horticulturalist to understand how a greenhouse works, you take a seed or you take a plant cutting, you bathe that in nutrients, you give it a, a warm environment to grow in, you know, that sort of thing for plants. It's basically the same thing using cultivation of cells. And you referred to it as cell-based meat. So cultivated meat, cell-based meat, clean, clean meat, all the same thing. And in this scenario, you basically take cells, a biopsy from an animal the size of a sesame seed can literally feed the world. So you take, the, take wow. the biopsy, you bathe the cells in nutrients. If you want a cutting that's like a steak or a, a pork chop or something like that, you need to grow it on a mm -hmm. scaffold. You do that in a cultivator. And at scale, what this looks like essentially is a brewery. So instead of growing animals in abattoirs, you know, you start on the farm and you ship the animal and then you um, slaughter the animal in an abattoir. And that is what meat production looks like. 
In this scenario, you grow the cells directly in something that, that looks like basically a fermenter for beer. We call those cultivators. I know those. <laughs> uh, exactly. And, uh, you know, you basically end up with your, you know, your neighbor. Right now you have your neighborhood brew pub. Uh, in this instance, you could have, you know, your neighborhood, you know, sort of meat brewery, essentially. Much safer process, much cleaner process, much less harm across a variety of metrics. That's sort of the process. And you can end up with the exact same taste, the exact same texture, the exact same appearance. And, and that's what has to happen, right? The goal of clean meat is not to force consumers to think differently about food. The goal is that it has the exact same taste, texture, appearance, et cetera. We give the consumer the precise meat experience. But because it's so much more efficient, as it scales up, the price comes down and you're literally giving them a safer, cleaner, better product that gives them the exact same experience and it costs less. That's essentially the goal. In, in the context of Longevity Week, which is focused on the re resilience, what impact can clean meat have on human life and in particular health span? Yeah, I mean, th there are a variety of ways of looking at that question. I think probably the three biggest, Jim nodded at one of them, and it's climate change. Because clean meat requires somewhere on the order of 90 to 99% less land, that has a really uh, big impact on climate, the amount of land that's required to grow crops, to feed them to animals so that we can eat animals. And once you crunch the numbers, even the early numbers indicate somewhere on the order of 90 to 99% less climate change if you're growing meat in this direction. And the technologies are just getting started. So you can get some climate mitigation at sort of the margins from the way that we're producing meat right now. But animal physiology is not going to change radically. So as long as you're cycling crops through animals in order to make meat, that is going to be a colossal adverse climate impact. And in fact, according to the journal Nature, chicken is the least climate change inducing meat. And yet chicken causes 40 times as much climate change per calorie of protein when compared to legumes like peas and soy and uh, lentils and that sort of thing. So this is a great benefit for the climate, a great benefit for land use. Um, and obviously climate change is an existential risk to humanity. The second one to talk about is antimicrobial resistance. And with regard to antimicrobial resistance, they, both of these are global problems, by the way. You can make positive strides in the United Kingdom or positive strides in Europe. And if things just keep getting sort of worse from a climate impact standpoint or worse from an antimicrobial resistance standpoint in China and the United States, you know, it's nice that you've made some progress in Europe, but microbes don't know international boundaries. Uh, so we're literally, as a result of the fact that globally we feed about 70% of all antibiotics that are produced by pharmaceuticals, about 70% of them are fed to farm animals. I mean, if you want to scare, Google the end of working antibiotics. If you want to make it really bad, add the word China to that Google search. The great thing about clean meat is it doesn't require antibiotics. So you're literally talking about going from 70% of antibiotics being used in farm animals um, and basically ushering in the end of working antibiotics, which is the end of modern medicine, according to the former president of the World Health Organization. You're going from that to no antibiotics needed for meat production 
um, which will have huge positive benefits on humanity. And then the last one is just food security, especially for countries that are having food security issues. That's not as big an issue in Europe. It's a big issue in places like Israel and Singapore, um, and to some degree, China. If you have a much more efficient production process, you have much better food security for your population. And because this is so much more efficient, it has massive dividends to be paid in terms of food security. Um, so at least those three, and you know, there are other ways that this better way of producing meat also has a positive impact on longevity. Thank you. I suppose at a time when the supply chain for food is under more scrutiny than ever with COVID, this is also relevant. It, I mean, it's hugely relevant. Just, uh, just a couple of months ago, the United Nations Environment Program released a report and they said, you know, what's going to cause the next pandemic? And they came up with seven things likely to cause the next pandemic. The very first one was the consumption of animal protein, because pandemics are oftentimes come from zoonotic diseases. And as long as we're raising billions and billions of animals, we are basically asking for animals to get some sort of disease that will jump the species barrier. So with COVID-19, it was, you know, bats in Wuhan, but it could have just as easily have been chickens in Newcastle, could have just as easily been, you know, pigs in wherever in Poland. So the number one thing that they talk about is just the consumption of animal protein, period, is basically begging for another zoonotic disease. Um, and then the second thing that they talk about is the intensive farming of animals. So it doesn't have to be intensive for an animal to get sick. Like you can have, you know, basically really good health. You cannot be compromising your immune system. You can get sick. You can give that to somebody else. That's the first cause. And then the second cause is the intensification of animal production, where you're cramming, you know, thousands of pigs or tens of thousands of chickens in a shed, which compromises their immune systems which is basically begging for these sorts of diseases to crop up and for these sorts of diseases to jump the species barrier into human beings. And those are the top two likely causes. And then that, that risk goes away if you're producing meat from plants or you're cultivating meat directly from cells. Um, and obviously pandemic risk is, you know, that's also an existential threat. With COVID-19, it was pretty virulent and it was fairly lethal. But the next one could be a lot more that could could spread a lot more easily, and it could be you know many times more lethal than COVID nineteen was. We don't know, and we're basically begging for those sorts of things to happen for more of these sort of COVID 19s maybe even more lethal uh, by the way that we raise animals for food right now. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people listening to that in a way they didn't listen to that 12 months ago. Feeling a little less speculative now, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I've seen the reports and I've read them with the benefit of hindsight, and I've put my hands in the air and said, how did people not realize this was going to happen? But I think a lot of people were telling people this was a risk. And people oh, yeah, just... the, the scientists have been saying it's inevitable. And they say the next one's inevitable. So we don't know how long it's going to be, but definitely going to happen. And raising animals for food is, is, very, is more likely than not to, to be the cause. Very good. Um, Jim, you've made your reputation on the back of uncovering money trees, uh, investment meta themes that have the potential to make those who invest early very rich. <laughs> Maybe I should listen to you more. How does clean meat as an opportunity rate for you, for an ordinary investor with a reasonable time horizon? What's the scale of the opportunity? Uh, I think it's absolutely enormous. And Bruce has articulated the case for clean meat extremely well. The case for investing in it, which the Good Food Institute has articulates also extremely well, is incredible because here you've got 
uh, a meat industry, excluding everything else, the materials, the fish industry, which are also going to be disrupted, the dairy product industry, which are also being disrupted by this revolution. But the meat industry is the size globally of the Spanish economy, which is fairly substantial. And as you know, I'm in Spain at the moment. So it's a huge industry ready for disruption. Uh, at the moment, the products on the market are plant-based and everyone will have heard of Beyond Burger and Impossible Burger and corn and uh, meatless farms, etc., cetera, uh, which have done extremely well, but are still a very small fraction of the uh, meat market, but growing quickly. But coming behind them is the meat that's grown in uh, culture, as Bruce explained, and it's not that far off. So, for instance, one of the companies that we own a share of, Blue Nalu, will probably be selling direct to restaurants and people in about two years' time, the lab-grown fish, which will be identical to regular fish, except it won't have all the harmful side effects of fish, including microplastics and mercury and waste, obviously be very positive for the environment. So we're not very far off. The reason I called my book, which Bruce has been extremely helpful and has written the foreword uh, for, Moo's Law, is that listeners or viewers will be familiar with the famous Moore's Law, which is based on semiconductors coming down in price by a factor of two every 18 months and improving in potency every 18 months as well. This was a phrase that was invented by Gordon Moore, founder of Intel, and has held steady all the way through the last 45 years. And so it will be with clean meat. As the scale goes up, the price comes down, and it will come down to the point where it will be cheaper than conventional meat with all the added benefits, of course, that Bruce has articulated so well. So in a very short space of time, it's possible that the entire industry will be disrupted. And I'll just give you one example before I sign off on that. And that is that 10 years ago, if you went into Starbucks or into Pret-a-Manger or whatever, and you asked for a, a, a latte, a, a a coffee with milk, uh, you'd almost certainly get cow's milk in it. There were very few alternatives, and they were only represented about half a percent of the market in the US. This year, it's knocking on 20%, and the almond milk, oat milk, soy milk, and coming soon is replicas of real milk that are fermented and grown uh, and, and developed in industrial uh, quantities. So it's gone from nothing to being 20% of the market in a very short space of time. Uh, with the result that the two largest uh, dairy producers in the U.S. have recently gone bankrupt. So it will be with meat alternatives because, and real meat that's grown in laboratories because there'll be a tipping point that will come very quickly. And then the whole industry, which is marginal at best anyway, will go bust. And farmers will presumably retrain to become growers of meat in labs on, on their land. Uh, and make money off their land for other uses, such as housing. So this is a very exciting and lucrative business. And about a billion dollars has come in in the last couple of years into this area, excluding plant-based meats. Uh, and I would expect multi-multi-billion dollars to come in in the next few years. So we're trying to position ourselves to take advantage of that. You mentioned the fact that you're positioning yourself. You listed agronomics on AIM a couple of years ago, I think now. Um, and it's been a very busy period since then. Um, can you give listeners an update regarding the company and its funding to date and a sense of its portfolio uh, currently? It's not very big. It's about 50 million US dollars. 
And the reason it's not very big is because the investments that we can make are relatively small compared to, you know, in, in two or three years' time. So we're positioning it to take advantage of the relatively small capital requirements that are available in good quality companies now, but with a view to putting a lot more in. So our target is to have $500 million in this sector by the end of next year. And the relatively good news for us is that most of the competing investors are philanthropic. They're doing it for very good reasons, largely to do with the reduction in animal cruelty, which is something I'm very big on as well. And we have a commercial vehicle. We, we do have a performance fee. We don't have any management fees. In that respect, we're somewhat different and we're open to anyone to invest in. And in fact, I think we're the only vehicle in the world that genuinely is focused on this area that's open to small and large investors alike. So we will be raising more money as time goes on and as we see more opportunities. And these opportunities are coming along all the time. My own experience working with a lot of early stage companies in a wide range of sectors, but perhaps particularly life science is that brilliant companies with fantastic management teams that are, are well-funded fail because the science they believed in doesn't quite turn out to, to work for them. How are you avoiding that? Um, what are the key attributes that you're looking for when investing through agronomics and, in, in, as you say, what is a wide range of effectively startups? Well, there are about 60 companies in this area worldwide and most of them have got a prototype in other words they're not trying to develop something from a, a science bench they already have something that you know can be tasted or can be felt or seen so um, in the case of material producers um, such as galley which is producing cotton or vitro labs which is producing leather they don't need to go through a rigorous um regulatory pathway because you can't eat well you shouldn't at least eat cotton yes. or leather and um, so they will scale up probably faster than the food based companies um, the regulatory pathway and the way in which the companies handle that is extremely important to us and uh, for a variety of reasons seafood is going to be easier than meat in that respect we also look at the traditional things that we look at in investing in other companies and in any other field which are the quality and depth of management the, the uh, quality of the investors that are coming into it, the business plan, and the path to commercialization. And uh, so the, the 12 companies, I believe, that we have in the portfolio at the moment are the ones that we've triaged and think have the greatest opportunity um, of success. But in this book, where the proceeds go to the Good Food Institute, which is an extremely good advocate for what Bruce was talking about, and, and Bruce's um, you know, the, the godfather of the, of the industry in that respect. And we're very lucky to have him on this show. They make an extremely good case, both for which company or all the companies in the field and also advocacy for why people should invest in the field. And in my new book, with their help, I've listed every single company that we know of in the world of, with any credibility. Um, so investors can have a, a look at what's available. Uh, and then we rate the companies that we think are the best in the field um, and ones that which investors should follow. Um, and uh, it would be great if we had a few more of these companies in the UK, but as, as yet, there aren't very many of them. But, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, government, whatever, take note, because this is going to be a very big industry. Uh, and uh, the UK could be at the forefront of it, given its lack of food security, we import half of our food, and given its very strong position, second only to the United States in in bioscience, which is in some ways what this whole industry derives from. 
amongst my lowbrow books on that shelf, it, it is cracking the code and fast forward. And do, <laughs> so I, I will certainly be buying a copy um, and making a small donation, Bruce. You might get one for free if you're lucky, Michael, <laughs> for Christmas. <laughs> I'm just pleased you can't see some of the other books. Um, anyway. <laughs> I've, I've uh, taken a screenshot and I'm going to be zooming in after. <laughs> yeah, zooming in, don't do it. Quite right, Bruce. Yeah. Bruce, for these companies to be successful, clearly consumer will, the consumer will need to change their behaviour. And a big driver of that will be awareness of the environmental impact that you spoke about earlier. What is the Good Food, in, Food Institute doing in terms of raising awareness, educating consumers, and, and how easy do you think it will be Obviously, price will be a huge factor, as Jim mentioned, for people to make that leap from buying meat that they understand from traditional farming methods to uh, clean meat. So, I mean, I think the, the, we're going to see a lot of people very enthusiastic uh, at the early ind- adopter stage, even when the products are a little bit more expensive. Um, people eat meat right now, uh, despite how it's produced. There's pretty much nobody who is enthusiastic about the adverse environmental impacts. There's nobody who's enthusiastic uh, about the adverse impacts on global health uh, or animal protection or whatever. So once you've got clean meat and it's side by side with conventional meat, and you're able to talk about all of the benefits of buying meat cultivated from cells as against the inefficiencies and antibiotic use and zoonotic disease risk and everything else that comes with conventional meat, we don't think it's going to be a really tough sell to convince consumers. But right now, we're a little bit in front of that. So GFI's focus, we have three uh, focal areas. One is educating scientists, um, and we have a university program as well as outreach to sort of the entire bioscience field to let people know this is an area where with their career, they can do very well for themselves. And they can also basically make their vocation kind of save the world across the ways that we've been talking about. Uh, We reach out to policymakers because we want to make sure that policymakers recognize that they should roll out the regulatory red carpet. So all of our international affiliates are focused on working with policymakers to say, you care about food security, you care about climate, you care about oceans. Like these are things that governments prioritize, figuring out how they can create programs that will help um, with these things. They also care about their own agricultural industries um, and they wanna make sure that they're on the forefront of technological revolutions. So making sure that governments are super enthusiastic um, about clean meat um, and make sure that they are incentivizing innovation rather than the opposite of that. Um, And then working with corporations as well to educate corporations, especially the big food corporations, the big meat corporations. Um, And one of the most exciting sort of early signs on the clean meat front is that some of the biggest meat conventional meat companies in the world have already invested in cultivated meat. So Tyson Foods, which is the U.S.'s biggest meat company, Cargill, which is number two, uh, they have both, each of them have invested in two clean meat companies, which is oftentimes how these startups, you know, this is where they get their exit when they are acquired by, you know, a much bigger company. So very good signs from the conventional industry. And one of the things we're focused on is making sure that they continue to see this more as opportunity and less as threat. Uh, because what they want to do is provide high quality protein to as many people as possible. Like that's the goal of the meat industry. If they see this as opportunity rather than as threat, it's going to yep. be a lot more successful and a lot more quickly. Obviously, you mentioned the fact that you're working with policymakers. 
is there a regulatory barrier that exists that a change would free up the market, make it more likely we would see clean meat products on supermarket shelves sooner? And will COVID-19 speed that up? Well, it's a country by country question. So there are yeah. certainly some countries where the current regulatory structure would allow. Uh, we only have to answer for one country then. We won't, we won't, we won't do that every country. <laughs> GFI's focus, we, we also, we don't want anybody to start selling um, clean meat in, for example, Japan, you know, tomorrow without having made sure that there is a food safety protocol that consumers will purchase the products and be clear that it is perfectly safe and healthy to consume. So um, GFI has actually been working with the government on, of Singapore um, on a model food safety protocol, which is now in sort of a pseudo peer review. We're floating it through um, companies that are food producers to make sure that they understand it and agree with it. Um, and then we'll be taking it to regulators all over the world and saying, you know, this is something that you can adopt yeah. as your food safety protocols. So we don't expect regulatory barriers. We expect governments to move about as swiftly as the market can move. Um, and all of the noises that we've been hearing from governments indicate that for the most part, that's likely to be true. So we're cautiously optimistic um, that governments will recognize um, the importance of this. And you know, further to your point, uh, pandemic pre prevention is yet another reason um, that government should be incentivizing um, and not just making the regulatory, not just rolling out the regulatory red carpet, not just making it easy uh, for these products to come to market, but actually incentivizing and in much the same way that they incentivize other good industries, they should be you know, providing tax credits and doing other things yeah. to make these companies' uh, lives as easy as possible. And I think both of you have alluded to the fact, I, I know when this uh, podcast webinar goes, goes out, I, I will promote it on LinkedIn or, or, or Twitter, and I, and I will get, just by reading my, my timeline, there will be angry people, farmers. I've had phone calls in the office from farmers. And they're saying it's not meat, or in, in the case of milk, it's not milk. And they're being challenged in the courts and, and, and similar things. Are you expecting that to become an issue? Or you suggested actually the milk producers or the meat producers, they need to see this as an opportunity. And those that don't will die. And those that do will be at the forefront of a, a food revolution. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, folks might say this is not a camera because it doesn't have analog film, or they might say this is not a phone because it doesn't have a cord. Um, clean meat is meat. Uh, meat is a consumer experience. Meat is, you know, just as much as, as this is a phone and this is a camera. Um, so yeah. to clean meat is meat. Um, and because it solves so many fundamental problems that governments have, um, you know, there may be places where... Um, there is some resistance, um, at least in the United States, which is the place where I think one might have expected the most resistance. We have seen regulators very enthusiastic. So we have kind of a weird food system here where the USDA and the FDA are going to jointly regulate cultivated meat. But both the Secretary of Agriculture and the Commissioner of the FDA have said nothing but exclusively positive things. And the main meat industry trade group, which is the North American Meat Institute, has also been very supportive of this technology. So we're optimistic that that's going to be replicated pretty much everywhere. And if there are any sort of countries that are stragglers, um, they will see the rest of the world getting on board and they will also yeah. get on board.
Very good. Um, it's obviously a lot for people to take in. Um, are there events and, or, or websites or information that's available to them where they can go after the podcast and, and, and dig in a bit deeper? Uh, yeah, I mean, our, our website is pretty much the central hub, uh, which is just gfi.org. And we have one innovation-focused webinar per month, one science-focused webinar per month. Um, and that's just standard every single month. And then uh, we're kind of constantly rolling out reports. And those reports, we inevitably have webinars around to those reports. For people who want a fairly sort of deep dive introduction, Jim's book is going to be it's just spectacularly good. I so thoroughly enjoyed um, reading it and got a lot out of it. For a, a slightly less deep dive, just sort of focused on the industry and a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, gfi.org slash industry. We yep. do annual reports looking at the plant-based space, the cultivated space, uh, clean meat. Um, and then also we have a recent report that we put out about fermentation. Very good. Thank you. And, and I suppose we'll, we'll sort of finish, Jim. On, on, on your book, and you mentioned it's going to be called Moose Law. When, when's that available? It's available on December the 7th, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or the Book Depository or the other. Harriman House, I think, is the publisher, and you can order it from them as well. We've already sold oh. quite a number of copies, actually. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, so. I'm, I'm sure it will uh, do well, particularly in the, the current climate with COVID. Uh, I, I, I asked this question just to finish off, just because... When you wrote Juvenescence, you, you did occasionally tell funny stories about your travels and some of the people you met. And so you've obviously taken time out and traveled around as part of researching the book. Is, is there any particular story that you think would, would be a good one to finish on? Well, I've done 35 interviews, but almost all of them have been on Zoom calls. So apart yes, from noticing the books in the background of the people I'm speaking to, uh, there hasn't been very much. But I will say that uh, Bruce and his wife are big cat lovers. And one of the companies in this area is trying to develop uh, cat food uh, based on, on cellular agriculture. And cats, unlike dogs, have to eat meat. And their preferred meat is mouse meat. So there is actually a company that's developing mouse meat for cats in the lab, which sounds a bit <laughs> gross, but that's what cats like. And uh, then there's a company in Australia that's developing kangaroo meat. I mean, since people don't even eat kangaroo meat now, I don't know why <laughs> it's they like eat a strange it. It was grown in a lab. Um, and uh, but there's all sorts of uh, wacky people out there. People trying to grow fur, for instance, and uh, fairly, fairly, you know, the sort of uh, I wouldn't say charlatanish, but like cowboyish type businesses that are trying to jump on this massive bandwagon. But in terms of you know big stories from the road, I'm going to have to wait until I can actually get out on the road. But as soon as I can, I'm going to meet with Bruce and all the other key opinion leaders face to face because they were incredibly gracious and helpful to me in the construction of this book. Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Jim. Uh, thank you, Bruce. Fascinating discussion on clean meat. Uh, Hill Dickinson, I'm a partner of Hill Dickinson, delighted to be one of the sponsors of Longevity Week. We're one of the largest specialist life sciences and regulatory teams in the UK outside the magic circle, whether it's development, drug development, regulation of cell or gene therapies, IVF, or, or the promise of a clean meat future. We like to think we can help countries or companies at all stages of their development and help them grow. So very pleased to be involved in this initiative. Just before you, um, you finish, Michael, I will endorse that. Michael's been <laughs> our lawyer for many years <laughs> and uh, is absolutely brilliant, hardworking, incisive, and doesn't get anything wrong. So, you know, if you've got any legal business, in the commercial sense, I don't think he's a criminal lawyer, but in the commercial sense, 
Michael's your man. Thank you very much, Tim. That's very kind. This broadcast has been brought to you by the Longevity Forum as part of Longevity Week 2020. We are very grateful to our sponsors, Juvenescence, Bill Dickinson, and Burnbray. For more podcasts, visit our website, thelongevityforum.com, or follow us on Twitter, longevity underscore forum.